You're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple-makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful. You can open up your Bible if you have one uh, to the book of Nehemiah. That's where we're going to be today. We've been going through this book this summer, and we have just a few more weeks left in it, but we're going to mostly be in Nehemiah chapter 10 this morning, uh, but we're going to look at one verse, the final verse from chapter 9 before we get into that chapter. Uh, So you can open up up to Nehemiah 9 and 10. Uh, I went, I'm an anomaly in this town. I am a pastor who did not go to Grace College or Grace Seminary. I went to Taylor, uh, which is just down the road, fairly similar in culture. And there was something that I had not heard of before I went to Taylor that I thought was unique to Taylor, but coming to another Christian college town, I found out it is not. Uh, It's a common experience in many Christian colleges, if not just all young adults that are believers or even beyond Christianity. It was something that I heard of, known by the acronym of a DTR. Have you all heard of this? Some of you laugh when you hear this. What a DTR is, if you you were not aware of it like me, is a conversation that happens between a couple uh, called defining the relationship. And what what that is is that there comes a point in many relationships where uh, one party is really interested in advancing further, longer term, uh, maybe even heading towards marriage, but the other one either clearly is not or is a little confusing in the signals that they're sending, or sometimes it goes both directions. And sometimes one person or both just say, we need to sit down and talk about this and figure out what we're doing here. Is this progressing anywhere? Uh, are you interested in me, or is this just something you're delaying uh, and stringing me along? And I, I, would, I remember uh, conversations with some of my friends friends who were about to have one of these conversations with their girlfriend and how nervous they were, um, but sometimes how hurt they would be after it, but sometimes how excited they would be after it as well if, if the intentions were clarified and there was progress moving forward. And so this happens at college campuses all over uh, the U.S., I'm assuming all over the world. A, a lot of people, many of you probably have had them before. I won't ask you to raise your hand, but um, the, the need to clarify commitment in a relationship is something that we universally experience as human beings. And it's not always in a dating relationship. Sometimes it's in business relationships. Sometimes it's in other relationships. But, but one thing, uh, one place, and we're going to see this in the Word of God today, that that need for commitment and clarifying who we're committed to and how we're committed to them, one place that that shows up is in the life of the church. Uh, and the question of, am I committed to the Lord? Am I committed to these people? Are they committed to me? And sometimes we just go about life as, as Christians in America not really knowing. We, we maybe come and rub shoulders with certain Christians, but we, don't, we haven't really made commitments to them or them to us. And we're going to see even in Nehemiah's day a few thousand years ago, there was this need to clarify, to have a DTR of sorts uh, with each other about what are we doing? What are we promising and pledging to each other? As human beings, we sometimes press back against that need to commit, that, that, co- that ability to make commitments to a person or a group of people. We really treasure things as Americans like flexibility, don't we? An ability to get out of a relationship easily if we want to, to have our options open, uh, to not be put in a box or not be tied down. or those, We'll use that type of language. And we have this either fear to commit or we have a hesitancy to make commitments to a person or to a group of people. 
And so where we pick up the story in Nehemiah, it makes sense that this is going to be on their minds, this need to clarify what we're about, defining their relationship as God's people. Because if you've been here this summer, where we've gone in the story so far, just from a real high altitude, is that the, the city of Jerusalem had been in shambles, and it was slowly being rebuilt, but it was just in bad situation. And Nehemiah was a leader used by God to come back to that city and to slowly, actually not slowly, it happened in a few months, to inspire the people that were there to rebuild the wall around the city, uh, to the walls that had been crumbled, that had been broken down, uh, to rebuild those walls and make them strong again, to give them some security from their enemies, from those who are outside of the city uh, who may want to come against them. And we saw just a few weeks ago that they completed that project in just under two months, which is actually mind-boggling to me. They completed that project. They were secure now in the city And it makes sense that now they're looking ahead into the future and saying, what are we going to do together? Like, what, how are we going to function together as God's people? What is life going to look like now that we're secure, that we're gathered together, that we have some sense of protection? And so that's what we're going to pick up in the, in the story today is them seeking to clarify those things. Them seeking to say, this is what we're committing to. This is how life is going to be, how we're going to live together as God's people in Jerusalem and around Jerusalem. And we're going to pick up in verse 38 of chapter 9. If you were here last week, Dr. Matt Harmon uh, preached wonderfully through chapter 9. And we saw that much of that chapter immediately before this, was a prayer of sorts. It was the people of God there in Jerusalem remembering their history, remembering the story of them as God's people, of how he had been faithful to them, how he had shown mercy to them over and over again, and how they had continued to rebel. They had been remembering these things. And then what we're gonna st- where we're going to start is at the very tail end of that, their response then as they remember those things. What are they going to do? What commitments are they going to make? What difference is it going to make? in their life. And so uh, we're going to read just one verse to start, and then we'll slowly pick up pace as we go. And by the end, we'll be at the end of chapter 10. But if you found Nehemiah chapter 9, we're going to just read verse 38 to start to see that this is indeed what they're doing. They're defining their relationship. This is the end of that prayer, Nehemiah 9, 38. Nehemiah recorded this. He said, because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. I'm going to pause there for just a a few minutes because I I want us to make sure we understand what's going on. What we're about to read in more detail is this firm covenant that they wrote and that they entered into. We don't use the word covenant a lot. It is in our church's name, Christ's Covenant Church, but we even shorten that down to CCC. And uh, you don't hear the word covenant a lot. I don't think that's in our jargon a lot as Americans, but it's right here in this text, isn't it? That they made a firm covenant together. What a covenant is, there's longer ways you can define it or there's shorter ways. A covenant, a, a definition I found this week that I think is pretty helpful is a covenant is an oath-bound relationship between two or more parties. That's in a a nutshell. It's an oath-bound relationship between two or more parties. There's people or groups of people that are making promises to one another, saying, this is what I will do, this is what you do. It's an agreement. And Nehemiah records that they are entering into a firm covenant, a written covenant together as God's people. Now that these walls are secure, now that their city is more secure, they're entering into one of these oath-bound relationships together as God's people there in Jerusalem. 
And we don't know yet details about it. We're going to see as we unfold who are those parties that are coming into this covenant. What are they committing to do? What are those promises that they're making to each other? But I, I want you to know, and it shouldn't be any surprise based on what I've even already said, that the main point of today's sermon, and I think of this text, even chapter, the end of 9 and chapter 10, I would say this way, and I would want each of you to do, is to commit to live for Christ. To commit to live for Christ. And I would say that in two ways. One is to commit to Christ himself. That is where that begins, is to make a commitment to Christ himself. And if you have never done that today, I hope by the end of today's sermon in this text that you are eager to do that and say, I want to commit. I am going to commit myself to Christ. But what we see most specifically in this text is that we to commit to live for Christ involves making a commitment to a local church. A, a commitment to Christians that I'm going to live with, that I'm going to operate with, that I'm going to serve with, and that are going to do the same for me. And so my hope for you, if you have already made a commitment to Christ, but you've never made a commitment to a church, whether that's here or to a congregation, wherever you live, if you're from out of town, my hope would be to motivate you, even in, to inspire you as you see the example of these people, is to commit to a local church to commit to a group of, of Christians who can help you and that you can help, who, who can operate Christian life together. And to the few hundred of us who have already done those, both of those things, even in our church, who have committed our lives to Christ and committed ourselves to each other as members here of CCC, I would just want us to grow in our appreciation and the, our understanding of the privilege it is to be a member of a church, to have people who are pledged to me and that I am pledged to to live in certain ways together. And so today, we want, I want us to see to commit to live for Christ. And we're going to see it in three ways, if you're a note taker. To commit to live for Christ freely, gladly. It's not an obligation. It's not a, a duty. But to, to freely commit to live for Christ. To collectively live for Christ and commit to live for Christ. That this is something we commit to together. But then specifically to commit to live for Christ. That, that we don't just make these broad umbrella commitments, but there's specific things that we commit to do with one another as we seek to follow the Lord. And so the first thing that I want us to see is to commit to live for Christ freely. That this should be something that flows out of us, this desire we have that comes from within to say, I want to commit to live for Christ. It's not just something I'm being told to do, but I want to do it of my own accord. And I, I would start back in verse 38, what we already read. Look at how that verse starts. Nehemiah doesn't just say, we make a firm covenant in writing, does he? He says, because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. It, there, there's people who come to the Christian life just thinking of the commitments that they make as obligations, this cold duty that I have to do, that, that I'm, I'm obliged to to do. But Nehemiah says that there's something that was motivating them to make these commitments. There was something that made these well up, this desire well up in them to say, I want to commit to these people. I want to commit to the Lord. And he says it's because of all this. If you weren't here last week, you may have to later read back through chapter 9 to see what all this is. What, what was it that was motivating them to even do this, to make these promises to each other? But for a quick summary, if you want to just glance your eyes back to verse 33 of chapter 9, I think you see at the end of that verse a good, quick summary of what the this is that Nehemiah is saying fueled them, that motivated them 
to enter into this covenant, to make these promises. At the end of verse 33, as part of this prayer, Nehemiah had recorded that they prayed to God and said, you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. And if you read back through the rest of that prayer, I think you'll see that kind of fleshed out, that they were remembering their history as God's people, and they were remembering, we, are, we fail over and over and over again. They use in that prayer these images of like stiffening their necks against God and, and rebelling against Him, walking away from Him. They have been remembering that we are so weak as human beings. We're so prone to sin and to, to walk away from God. But they also in that prayer had seen God act faithfully to them in spite of that. The phrase mercy is over and over in that passage. And they've, they've been remembering both of those things. Our tendency to sin, our, our propensity to that, but also God's over and over and over demonstrations of mercy. Of him saying, I'm going to be slow to anger with you. I'm going to show kindness to you even in spite of your sin. And Nehemiah says, because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. It's not just something cold that they, they're entering into, but they know we are vulnerable as God's people. We're prone to sin. We, we drift back towards that often, even as God's people. And we need help. We need, we need strengthening from one another. So we want to make these commitments to help each other. But they're also just, I think, overwhelmed with God's love and mercy towards them that in spite of their sin, He is constantly showing them mercy over and over and over again. I think their hearts are welling up and saying, how can we not commit to live for you? Like you who have shown such mercy to us, how can we do anything but make these commitments, even in writing, even sealed, to make these commitments towards you? And I, I say that we should make commitments, even us today, make them freely, because these people did not have to make this covenant. This was not something in their day and age, in Nehemiah's day and age, that was written down in their law as something they had to do like every year or every seven years or every hundred years or things like that, that they had to renew this covenant and, and make these promises. This was just something they wanted to do. It was something that came from within them and said, we want to make, we're freely entering into this new covenant, this agreement with each other. And they knew it would be practically helpful to them. I was trying to think of a comparable example. And there's not a lot of situations where we make vows today, right? Where we make formal commitments. But one that came to mind that maybe even some of you have done or maybe some of you have witnessed is vow renewal ceremonies that couples will do, right? When you enter into a marriage, you make vows to one another. That's the core of what entering into marriage is and what you see at a wedding is those vows that are being made. And couples, when they get down the road years or maybe a few decades, there might be different things that are motivating it. But sometimes they come to a point in time where they say, we want to renew our vows. We want to say those again. Like we want to, to make these, like I'm re-upping on my commitment to you. That's not making a new relationship, right? It's taking something that was already promised, already set up years or decades ago, and saying, I'm going to say new commitments. I'm going to say these same things, but my heart wants you to know I'm committed to you. And it's good for me to know that you are committed to me. So it's not establishing new commitments, but renewing old ones that you see uh, married couples do, that you see God's people about to do and what we're going to read. And so that it was because of this, the mercy of God and their tendency to sin, that they said, we need to commit to each other. We need each other's help. We need to make these promises to one another about how to live. And I would say to us as people who live in 2018, 
we have an even greater all this than they did. That, that should be motivating us to make commitments to Christ. That should be motivating us to make commitments to each other because our all this includes a few thousand more years of history where we've seen the human heart and it's bent towards sin. We've gotten to see more of our weakness, more of our vulnerability, even with all our technology advances, sin is still in our hearts. And we need help. But we have a greater picture of God's mercy than they had as well. That when they had the mercy of God, looking back to the exodus and to to God's provision of the, the promised land, things like that, Brothers and sisters, we have the cross to look to that they did not. The supreme act of God's mercy to people who are sinful and rebelling against him. God showed his mercy to us in an infinite way when he sent his son Jesus to this world and let him be crushed upon the cross for your sins and mine. Like that is mercy beyond what words can even describe that we get to remember and look back on and celebrate. And we have a greater all this than they did. Of seeing our sin and seeing God's mercy, it should compel us to say, I want to live for Christ. I am willing and glad to commit. I am freely committing myself to live for that son of God who came and died for me and who was raised from the dead. Like We ought to have an eagerness in us, a willingness to make firm commitments, even in writing, uh, to commit to serve the Lord. And if you're here in this room today and you have never made that commitment to Christ himself, Say, I am turning from my sin. I am weak. I'm sinful. I'm rebellious. But I'm turning to you. I'm, I'm confessing that to you and putting my trust in you that you died for me and were raised from the dead for me. If, that, if you have never made that initial commitment today, I would call to you to have today be that day, to cry out to him, to pray to him, to say, Lord, forgive me. Like this mercy that, that I hear about, show it to me. Uh, thank you for dying upon the cross. And I tell you, if you come to him in that manner, he will not turn you away. Like he will show you forgiveness. He will give you eternal life right now in the seat you're sitting in. So come to him. Make commitment to him himself. But to those of us, maybe most of us in this room who've done that, who've committed ourselves to Christ, I, as we come into this fuller section of chapter 10, I, I want you to be willing to make commitments even to other Christians. To make commitments, even in writing, dare I say, to other Christians of how you will engage with them and how they will engage with you. This is a beautiful thing. This is something that, that we ought to be compelled to do and freely do. Even if it, there's many people who th- hear about like churches like ours who have church membership. And we make commitments to each other as Christians, formal even commitments. And they say, that's not in the New Testament. Like, show me chapter and verse where there's a membership covenant and believers have to do that together. And, and they, they, they think and that that just dismisses their need to do so because there's not a chapter and verse that says, become a member of a local church and make formal commitments. But these people didn't have that either. They were doing it freely from their hearts because they knew their weakness and they knew the mercy of God. They said, how can I not commit to these people to help one another and have them help me? And just because something's not explicitly told to us, you must do this in the New Testament, doesn't mean that the seeds of it aren't there and that the goodness of it isn't true. And so I I would call each of us who have already committed to Christ to commit to 
fellow Christians. And where I see that, we're going to read now a long section, a lot of names. Uh, so forgive me if I pronounce some of these wrong. There's some normal American names that we think of normal ones like Daniel in there, but there's about to be a whole bunch of other names uh, that I may butcher. But we're going to read the names of a lot of people who are entering into this covenant together, even groups of people by the end of what we're going to read, that we're entering into this covenant together. And so in this section, I want us to see that we are to commit to live for Christ collectively. It's not just individual commitments we make to Christ, but commitments we make together to God and that we even make to each other. So follow along with me as we start in chapter 10. We're going to see some of these groups that Nehemiah named in verse 38, where he had named the princes, the Levites, the priests. We're going to see some of those groups named in the first 26 verses. And then uh, in 28 and 29, we're going to see uh, that these broader groups of people uh, that, that we're entering into this covenant together. So Nehemiah recorded this. He said, on the seals are the names of Nehemiah, the governor, the son of Hakaliah, Zedekiah, Sariah, Azariah, Jeremiah, Pashur, Amariah, Malchijah, Hattush, Shebaniah, Maluch, Harim, Merimoth, Obadiah, Daniel, Genathan, Baruch, Meshulam, Abijah, Mijamin, Maaziah, Bilgai, Shemaiah. These are the priests. Then he's going to mention the Levites. He says, the Levites, Jeshua, the son of Azaniah, Benui of the sons of Henadad, Cadmiel and their brothers, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Kelita, Haliah, Hanan, Micah, Rehob, Hashabiah, Zakur, Sherebiah, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Bani, Beninu, the chiefs of the people, Harosh, Pahath Moab, Elam, Zatu, Bani, Bani, Azgad, Bebai, Adonijah, Bigvai, Adin, Atur, Hezekiah, Azur, Hodiah, Hashum, Bazai, Harif, Anathoth, Nabai, Magpiash, Meshulam, Hazir, Ezebel, Zadok, Jadua, Pelatiah, Hanan, Aniah, Hoshea, Hananiah, Hashub, Halohesh, Pilha, Shobek, Rehum, Hashbanah, Maasiah, Ahiah, Hanan, Anan, Maluch, Harim, Ba'anah. Oh, thank you. There you go. Those may have been totally wrong, and you wouldn't even know. Oh, that's good. Then verse 28 broadens. I read those on purpose, by the way, because every individual matters. Like, I mean, when God's people are making promises together, we make them as individuals, but we make them collectively. Um, but there's these bigger groups that, that are mentioned next, because it's not just these leaders. It's not just the priests. It's not just the governor. It's all the people. Verse 28 says that the rest of the people... The priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord and his rules, and his statutes. We'll pause right there. 
Um, but this is where we see in this text that the call and the example that's set by them to live for Christ collectively, to, to, to make these commitments collectively, not just as individuals to God, um, but as individuals to one another. We saw here at the beginning of this text, did you see whose name comes first there? I think this is instructive to us. It's Nehemiah himself, the governor, the, the man who, humanly speaking, had been the leader of these people who had organized the rebuilding of this wall. His name is on it first. To say these commitments that we're about to all make together, I'm signing up to. Like there, there's not expectations that, that some people of God have to do and other people of God do not. There, there is a call for all of us to make commitments to one another. And the same is true today. The three elders that we have in our church are members, fellow members with all the other few hundred members in our church, just the same, because we are weak and sinful men as well. Um, we've been gifted in different ways as God's people, but we are all making the same promises to each other. We're making the same commitments to each other. And then we saw these summary categories, like the first eight leading up to verse eight, were the priests. So it was a subset of men who would be offering sacrifices, things like keeping the temple up. But then verse nine and following is the Levites. That was one of the nation, or excuse me, one of the tribes of the nation of Israel that that uh, you could get back into the history of. But it's fascinating this who this group of people was. They were the the tribe from which the priests came. But they, Nehemiah lists some of them, the Levites and the heads of their families. And you see uh, that, that, the entire, that eventually, even in verse 14 uh, and following, you see the chiefs of the people. Uh, so some of their local leaders, maybe even patriarchs and their families are mentioned here. And then down in verse 28, you see it's not just individuals, but there's broad categories of people that are entering into this covenant too. Verse 28 just matter-of-factly says the rest of the people. So that, that should cover everybody, but then they give some more specific examples of gatekeepers and singers and temple servants. And so that there's all kinds of people that are entering into this covenant. I think it's wonderful to even see, did you catch in verse 28, he says, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God. That's even referring to people who weren't Jews ethnically, who weren't born into a Jewish family and had that taught to them from the get-go, but they maybe were from some surrounding tribes or regions, and they heard about this great God, and they heard about his mercy and his power, and they said, I want to be part of that. I'm even willing to leave my God, leave my family, leave my tribe, and come and hitch myself with them and with their God. And so even those folks who aren't ethnically Jewish are coming together to make these promises with Jews, to live for their God, to, to serve Him. You see that, that women and children are mentioned in this day and age, when it may have been easy for them in a very heavy patriarchal society to just mention the men and the heads of their family. They mention that their wives and that their, their boys and girls, the young even among them, there's no age requirement. It doesn't seem like to be part of this covenant and making these commitments. And so there's a broad swath of people making these promises to each other. But I would know, and if I'm reading this text right, this is not all Jews everywhere entering into this covenant. This is the people around Jeru in Jerusalem, around Jerusalem and the, and the area nearby. They are the ones who are entering into this covenant together. I think that's important because this isn't just something that every Jew was to do, but it was the people they were around. 
the people that they lived in community with, at least relatively so, that they lived nearby and would, would rub shoulders with, it is them that are making commitments specifically to each other, to a subset of God's people. They're making these commitments. And they, they are joined. Did you see the, how it's phrased in verse 29? It says that they joined with their brothers. That's where you can see that, um, that they are making this covenant together. That they're joining together. It's not first and foremost commitments that they're making to God, although that's implied in what they're about to say. We'll do this and we'll do that and we'll not do this. In a sense, they're making commitments to God, but we see that they're joining with each other. They're making commitments to each other about how they're going to live. Even if you look back at the very first verse we read, verse 38 of chapter 9, they said, we make a firm covenant in writing. It's not even that they're making a covenant with God. But they're making a covenant with each other. They're, they're making promises to each other. And they're doing it publicly, right? They're, they're not doing this in secret. They're not doing it um, mysteriously, like anonymously, like, okay, I'll sign up for that. Sign, sign me up, but other people don't need to know about it. This was to be known. That's why all these people's names were on there. That's why their names were written on, on the, the, the document, the sealed document. It was sealed back in verse 38. We saw that. It was sealed not to keep it secret, who was part of that, but to lock him in. Like to say, you are entering into this commitment, and you can't erase your name from it. Like you are making these commitments. It, it was to be known who was in this commitment and who was not. Who was saying, I'm on board with this, I'm, I'm with you, I will live this way, you live this way with me, and who was not willing to say that? Who was saying, I'm exempt from that. And so it was a public thing. And today, as we think of membership in our church and commitments we make to each other, there's some parallels I think that we can see. That when we become members of our church, we are making commitments to each other. We're making commitments to fellow Christians. You've made, if you're a member of our church, you've made, whether you realize it or not, and I hope you realize that you've made commitments to me. And I've made commitments to you. And we've made commitments to each other about how we're going to live our life, how we're going to relate to each other, how we're going to operate as God's people. And these aren't, when as Christians, God in some sense calls us to commit to every Christian that's out there to love every brother and sister in Christ that we ever come across. But there's certain things that we can only do for the people who are around us. The people who, you can't bear the burdens of every Christian around the world. You can't rejoice with every Christian around the world. You can't teach, if you have a gift of teaching, every Christian around the world. You can't be hospitable to every Christian around the world. God puts us in pockets of his people all over this planet and says, use your gifts, make commitments to serve those people. And they will do the same to you. They'll make commitments to you. Just like these Jews were not making a covenant with every Jewish person everywhere, we don't make a, a commitment and a binding agreement with every Christian everywhere. We do it with the people who are here, who are part of our church, who are saying, I will do the same for you. And these commitments are to be known. They're to be official even in some sense, just like theirs was. They signed on the dotted line. They said, I will do this. I, we're about to read some of the promises they made. I will operate this way. I will live my life this way. And you agree to do the same. And it was known who was part of it. 
And that's why as, as a church, we have an official role, so to speak, of who our members are. We want to know who among us has committed to these things. Who, who can I bank on this, that, that they're committing to me and that I'm committing to them so that we can do this life together. And God knows that we need commitments from other Christians and that it's good for us to make commitments to other Christians, doesn't he? It's good for us to know who we're responsible for in the whole kingdom of God. Like, who am I to care for? Just every Christian in Warsaw? Every Christian in Indiana? Every Christian in the U.S.? No, it's every Christian in your church who is a member who has made these commitments. That's how you know who it is. And he, the Lord knows we need help in living the Christian life. We need people who are bound to us, people who are saying, I will be with you thick and thin, ups and downs. I will try to encourage you and instruct you and help you, and please do the same for me. God knows that we need accountability. He knows our, our tendency to sin, and he knows that we need accountability and commitments uh, that will be helpful to us to motivate us. He knows that we need protection and care from a particular group of people uh, that, that can look out for us. And these, these promises, these commitments that we see them making and that we make today are to keep us from running away from one another. To keep us, in a sense, when things get hard or when we get disappointed with certain things or when, when someone mistreats us or things like that. These promises are to keep us, in a sense, bound to these brothers and sisters. Say, I, I want to stay. I, I'm going to stay. We're going to work through these things. I'm, we're going to operate as a family. And I'm not just going to bail. Thinking of marriage vows again. Uh, I don't have the exact quote, but often at wedding ceremonies, I'll use a quote from a pastor named Tim Keller about vows that are made at a wedding ceremony, those commitments that are being made. And in a, in a sense, what he says is that those vows that you're making in that moment aren't just a, a, an expression of present love, but they're a promise for future love. That they're a commitment to say when things are great right now, like that's safely assumed when people stand up here and get married, but as things get difficult ahead and there's conflict that comes up or disappointment or disillusionment or you just get kind of bored with each other, things like that, those vows are to keep you motivated, to keep you serving that husband, to keep you serving that wife and to not bail. And vows and commitments that church members make to each other should be the same. They should be things that, that a year from now when I get disappointed or when, uh, six months from now when somebody hurts me or when, when there's uh, another church that's like new and attractive and whatever and I, I, I'm tempted to go join with those people. It's to say, no, these are my people. Like these are the people God has given to me and that, that I've been given to, to them to say, this is how we're going to live life together and I'm with you and I'm for you and you're with me and we're going to do this together. And so we are to commit to live for Christ collectively uh, as a group of people. I love Charles Spurgeon. That doesn't surprise any of you who, uh, who know me or listen to me at times. And I came across this quote. I was reminded of this. Uh, it's a little long, um, but it's, it goes smoothly, and I think you can follow. But he was using, a couple weeks ago we sang this, or two times, we sang a song, Brick After Brick. Some of you were here, and we referenced those passages uh, in the New Testament where God talks about the church like a building and how each of us are like a brick who gets put into that. We're like living bricks, living stones that get put into that building. And uh, building off of that idea, this is what Charles Spurgeon wrote. Uh, he said this. He said, I know there are some who say, well, I've given myself to the Lord, but I don't intend to give myself to the church. Now, why not? Well, because I can be a Christian without it. 
And he says, are you quite clear about that? You can be as good a Christian by disobedience to your Lord's commands as by being obedient. What is a brick made for? To help build a house. It is of no use for that brick to tell you that it is just as good a brick while it is kicking about on the ground as it would be in the house. It is a good for nothing brick. He says, so you Rolling Stone Christians, I don't believe you are answering your purpose You are living contrary to the life which Christ would have you live, and you are much to blame for the injury you do. That is a firm word, but it's instructive to us who may be prone to not make commitments to fellow Christians or to see, I just operate me and God, and I listen to my own stuff, and I do my own things, and I'm kind of a freelance Christian. Like Charles Spurgeon would say this, but most importantly, God would say this, be part of a church. Like be all there. Use the gifts that God's given you. And if you're part of our church, use them here. And care for people. And let us care for you. Make these commitments that is for your good. So we're to make these commitments collectively. But the last thing we're going to see in this longest section of this text is to commit to live for Christ specifically. Uh, These men and women and children even weren't entering into this covenant just making these really broad statements. We'll live for Yahweh. But there's specific things we're going to read about that they committed to do for each other and with each other. So we're going to read these starting in verse 30. And what is following here in verse 30 uh, and beyond is really explaining verse 29. This covenant that they're entering into, if we remember in verse 29, was that they were joining with their brothers and entering into a curse. It's saying, if we don't keep this, may we be cursed. But they're making an oath, this is what he said, to walk. And God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God. And to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. And so what we're about to read is an explanation of that. There was hundreds of years before their day, God had made a covenant with Moses and the people at Mount Sinai and gave them this way to live uh, that, this, that became known as the law. But now they're making a covenant to keep the covenant. They're saying, we're going to bond together. We're going to commit together to keep that law. And we're going to say some specific things about that law that we particularly want to pay attention to. So we're going to read these now. There's going to be three groups of things that they commit specifically to do. It's going to be things to do with marriage, with keeping the Sabbath, and then the biggest chunk is going to be about supporting temple worship like giving uh, offerings and tithes and things like that so let's read this to the end of chapter 10 verse 30 and following we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons that's number one this is the second one and if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the sabbath day to sell we will not buy from them on the sabbath or on a holy day and we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. That is the second one about Sabbath. And this longest section is about temple worship and their commitment to keep that functioning, the, the sacrifices and the needs of the temple. Verse 32 says, We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. Side note, listen for how many times they say the house of our God. It's like they, they revel in it, they enjoy it, and they want to take care of it. It says, verse 33, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. 
we, the priests, the Levites, and the people, have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God, according to our Father's houses, at times appointed year by year, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. So much that could be said here, but I just want to quick overview these things. The commitments specifically that they were making, you saw back in verse 20, or excuse me, verse 30 had to do with marriage. They were making a commitment that not because of race or ethnicity, but because of religious viewpoints that they would not give their sons or daughters to be married to people of other nations who would lead them potentially to worship these false gods, to forsake uh, their faith in the Lord. And they're saying, we, will refuse, we refuse to do that. Verse 31 was their keeping of the Sabbath. Uh, they are not even necessarily saying that they won't work on the Sabbath day, that seventh day of the week. But what they're promising in verse 31 is when surrounding nations who have, feel and maybe even have the freedom to work on that day, and they come in to try to sell stuff to us, we're not going to buy it. Like, we're going to try to keep the principle of rest and even model that to them. Like, we're, gonna, we're not going to buy their goods, even though we, we wouldn't be working on the Sabbath, and this is a, a big sign of their trust uh, in the Lord and His provision uh, that He will take care of them even when they refuse not just to sell but even to buy on the Sabbath. And so they're willing to, even there's Sabbath principles of forgiveness in the Old Testament that every seven years, for example, you see this alluded to in verse 31, they have to let debts go. And they're saying, we're willing to do that. We want to do that. We're committing to do that, as the Lord told us to do. So they're committed to keeping the Sabbath. And the biggest chunk was their commitment to support temple worship, to say these offerings that God has called us to make, they require wood, they require animals, they require uh, these different things to function. There's oil that's required to keep lamps burning, things like that. And they're saying, we commit to keep it functioning. We, we will give what we're called to give. And even there's a few things above and beyond that. They say, we're committing to give these things to support uh, what we are called to do to worship our God even the giving of their firstborns uh, to, to service if needed. And so they're committing to do these things. And if we have more time, we could go into detail of what all these are. 
But we're in a different age, aren't we? We don't have a temple, a physical temple to worship in, and we don't take up a lot of who's going to pay the wood offering uh, this week for the church, uh, things like that. We live in a different age, but we're not that different, right? We are still called to obey Christ in specific ways. Before he went back into heaven, do you remember what Jesus said? He said to go make disciples of the nations, to baptize them. Then what did he say? To teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. Like as God's people, we have commands that have been given to us in the word that we are to do, that we are to help each other do. Uh, and, and God has given us and entrusted that to us. And so there are specific things we're called to obey, called to believe, called to give up as God's people. We could say as members of a church, we could just say, well, this is, this is what I promise to follow. Like, that would be, be an easy thing to do, say, well, this is the specifics of, of what I follow. And that is very true. Like, this gives us the specifics, doesn't it? The Word of God is our guide. It is inerrant. It's infallible. It is the source of, of truth that, that, that we test truth and error by. Um, but to simply say that this is what I commit to lacks specificity. It, it lacks uh, ability to, to clarify and to make things simpler for us to know these are the specifics that I promise. Because that's what they were doing here, right? They're modeling that, taking the broad law and crystallizing it into some simpler statements. And it is helpful, even if it's not required, it's helpful for us sometimes to take this and simplify it into some smaller commands that are reflective of that. Let's say, this is what I promise to do. This is what we promise to do. And so we have done that as a church. We've crystallized our commitments that we make as members into, uh, there's about six, I think, specific commitments that we make to each other. Things, I wrote down a few of them, but we commit to things like, I commit to active participation and service in this local body. By attending called gatherings like this, or like our meeting next Sunday night, uh, and engaging in meaningful biblical community. I commit to pursue godly disciplines of study and applying of scripture, prayer, proclaiming the gospel, regular giving of my time, gifts, and finances. There's things like that, that they're not going outside of scripture, but there's summaries of it that we say, I commit to do this. I commit to live this way. You commit to live this way. We commit to live this way together and specificity is helpful uh getting specific I was, I was trying to think of another oath where maybe we could see this and thankfully i've never had to do this but maybe some of you had uh to be a witness in a court uh, there's an oath that you have to to make i see this on tv and i think i verified this by reading some things this week that you don't just swear to tell the truth right but it's more specific than that you swear to tell the truth the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And there's specificity that's helpful when we make promises that uh, as Christians we could just say, well, I promise to follow Christ. And that's wonderful. Like that, that is the umbrella that all promises should fall under. But it's helpful to have specifics, to have specific things that we commit to do. And that's what we seek to do as members. I'm going to give you a little spoiler alert for the next couple weeks of Nehemiah. Uh, because these promises that they make to one another, they seem wonderful. They seem powerful. They, they model, I think, in real ways how we should operate as God's people. But I'm going to give you a spoiler alert. They fail to keep these commitments. Uh, we're going to see that by the end of Nehemiah. They fail to keep them in some pretty egregious ways. And even though they had this DTR of sorts with God and with each other, uh, they fail to keep their commitments. 
as we read ahead and see that it could tempt us to say, why do we even try to do this? Like, why do we make commitments to each other? What, what is different about us? Or are, is this just going to fail for us as well? But there's a key difference. Their covenant that they were seeking to keep was a covenant that God had established with Moses and the people back at Mount Sinai. And it was a covenant where God said, you need to live this way, do this, and don't do this. And if you obey, there will be blessing that comes to you. But if you disobey, there's going to be a curse that comes upon you and discipline that comes upon you. That was the covenant that they were under and that they were seeking to keep. We as Christians are under a different covenant, under what the Bible calls the new covenant or as our church name, uh, Christ's covenant. is a different covenant that we're under, that we're seeking to keep, that we're part of. And in this covenant, God operates with us differently. God still puts requirements upon us. He says that we must repent of our sins. We must put our, our faith in his son, Jesus Christ. He says even we must persevere in that faith to the end. But here's the difference, is that in a promise that God did not make to Israel back at Mount Sinai, God promises to provide the things he requires. He's not entering into an agreement with us and saying, here's what you need to do, good luck keeping it. He's entering in and saying, these are the requirements, and I will give you those things. I'm going to give you those. I'm going to give you repentance. I'm going to give you a heart that trusts in my son Jesus. I'm even going to help you and enable you to persevere to the end in faith. And the things that God calls us to do, he empowers us to do. And he takes that law that was outside of their hearts that they just fought to follow, and he puts that law inside of us on our hearts. And he gives us the Holy Spirit within us to motivate us and to keep us faithful to him. And it's not as if we will never fail. We fail to keep our commitments. I fail at times to keep my commitments to you as fellow members. You do to me, I'm sure, as well. But we have a God who has made promises to us that he will never back out on. That, that he comes good. Our promises left to themselves are weak and powerless, but his promises to us are sure and powerful. And he has promised if we come to him in faith and trust in his son Jesus that he will save us and he will empower us to the end to obey and will be part of his kingdom forever. And that should give us hope that even when we fail, when we have these smaller failures among us, that he is going to help us. He is going to empower us. I want to leave you with a quote before we sing one last song from this wonderful book. I'd recommend this book to any of you. I know you cannot see the title, but you can at least see the color. And whatnot. This is in our resource center. It's called Stop Dating the Church. It's a wonderful. The title alone is worth the price of the book, I think. But it's all about the need and the importance and the value of committing to a local church. And saying, I don't just come and rub shoulders, but I'm committed to these people. They're committed to me. And he said this uh, near the end of that book. He said, if Jesus loves the church, you and I should too. We can't use the excuse that the church has messed up too many times or that we're disillusioned. He said, I want you to hear this. Jesus is the only person who has the right to disown and give up on the church. But he never has and he never will. Amen. And if Christ is committed to us, we ought to freely, collectively, specifically commit to one another as well. Amen.